This podcast contains coarse language, adult themes, and spoilers. My name's Peach, and for the past couple of years, I've been helping my friend Shag overcome his childhood aversions to everyday foods in the podcast Fussy Eater. Now it's his turn to help me conquer my phobia of scary movies over one spooky night in the FBI studios, one Wikipedia synopsis at a time. This is Spooko. All right, so here at Spooko, uh, we're good at lots of stuff and we're bad at some other stuff. And one of the things we tend to leave to the last minute is due diligence. So as any good transactional lawyer will tell you, uh, you can do months and months of prep for the deal, but it's only the important sharp issues, the real harsh bits of your due diligence uh, that come out in the final moments. We've got a guest today. We'll do a proper intro later, but we need to get the DD out of the way. Um, this is a loaded question. The answer is important. Uh, Megan, how do you feel about the patriarchy? Do you think it's really, really oh. good and it should remain in its current form? So that's one possible answer. Yeah. Or do you think maybe it should be smashed? <laughs> maybe we should smash the patriarchy. So just, just as a bit of a hint, this is going to be Set pretty relevant. Set it on relevant. fire. Yeah, there we go. Bit of distraction. Everyone likes that on a Friday. <laughs> well, look, I'm going to step in and say that speaking of due diligence, at Spooko, we do try to be as self-aware and, you know, generally culturally aware as possible. And doing the research for this week's episode, I unveiled a real blind spot in Spooko. It's episode 79. So I went back over the 78 horror films we've covered already just to see how many of them weren't directed by men. And oh, I discovered, shit. I discovered that Pete, you know, Pete, I'm going to put this. How many of the 78 horror films, and it's a wide range of right across the world, there's Australian, there's Korean, there's Japanese, there's a lot of American, there's, there's British films. How many of the 78 films that we have covered in Spooko so far were directed by women? Okay, I'm going to guess four. I can call to mind Babadook. Uh, I'm trying to go through them all. Was it, is it, one of the Halloween, like lots of the Halloween sequels had... None of the Halloween no. sequels. So I'm, I'm going to step in here. You were very close. So five, but five on a technicality. Only three directed solely by women. Two more were directed by directing teams that involved a woman. God. Out of 78 films. That is insane. So I was so excited to hear that for International Women's Day, instead of putting up like a pithy post on social media that's like, uh, yay, women. Here's a photo of the women at our office. Or instead of having a cupcake brunch for the women and inviting in an inspirational speaker who is a woman <laughs> to talk about being a woman in the workplace. Who cleans up after the cupcake? Oh, fuck, that's such a good point. Uh, (laughs) Australian (laughs) network, SBS, on their streaming service, SBS On Demand, premiered a horror anthology series, not only created by a woman, but featuring 10 short films, all directed by women, which 
by just doing it on our show, immediately triples the amount of films we've covered uh, by women in like in one film. Like that's kind of crazy. <laughs> that's really fucked. So I'm so excited that we are joined by the creator of Dark Whispers Volume One, which is currently streaming on SBS On Demand. Megan Riakos. Megan, welcome to Spooko. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. I mean, like part of the whole um, reason behind Dark Whispers is this very thing. It's to highlight um, uh, female horror directors, in particular Australian female horror directors, because there's a whole bunch out there, but they're kind of operating on the margins and they're not getting these budgets. Is it almost like there's a millennia old system of like social mores that stands in the way of them? Getting, getting publicity out there, Meeks? Is there, is, is, is there anything you, you would have heard of like that? Does that ring a bell or anything like that? Oh, look, there's so many reasons. There's so many reasons why the patriarchy keeps us down. <laughs> <laughs> and look, things have changed since Me Too. Like, really, Me Too's only been a couple of years, but oh, I made my first feature, um, Crushed, just before Me Too happened. And so I made the film outside the system, so I didn't feel like I was, you know, um, having to worry about the patriarchy in the creativity of that project. But when it came time to um, start marketing it, distributing it, you know, I'm going to um, business meetings where people are sexually harassing you overtly in the meeting. So you kind of go, okay, so in business deals, they're not taking you seriously. Um you know, uh, the lead character of Crushed is quite, um, she's a flawed protagonist, you know. We often see male flawed protagonists, you know, as far back as film noir, you know, the drunkard PIs you like to sleep around. But when you talk about those film noirs, that's not like the thing that you're excited about when you see it. And the very first journalist who covered um, my feature Crushed at Montreal, the very first question he asked me, he interviewed me and he said, oh, gee, your lead character sleeps around a lot, doesn't she? And I was like, Crushed is like about a wide-ranging agricultural conspiracy theory. There's like five murders and all this crazy stuff happens. And like, you know, the undercurrent of that is that the the lead actress is, you know, going through some some shit and she has a couple of one-night stands to kind of, you know, explore that. That was his very first question. And so there's this expectation that women, um, and look, it is changing, I will say that, but not fast enough. So you kind of have this idea of the kinds of stories, A, that that women should tell. And then the third one is that, you know, you get a lot of people saying, yeah, yeah, we want more women directing, but we want women to direct the same way that a man would, but it's just a woman directing it instead of, you know, so it's basically they want us to direct the male gaze. So, yes. Is this a genre issue, Megan? Because I think it's a challenge any filmmaker will face, no matter the genre. But I, but I do also think that horror is seen as very male, testosterone, gore, blood, violence. You know, so it feels like a much more masculine domain. Um, so yeah, I'm really interested in what you've said before. In that, when you look when you look at the history of what we've covered and we didn't seek out to cover films by male directors. It just happened Mm. that when you do a widespread of horror films, it's mostly directed by men. Mm. But what you've said is that there are heaps of female horror directors waiting to come out. Where, Where are they? What's happening? Are they just not allowed into the, into the studio system? Well, I guess there's a, well, I mean, part of this was, so, so basically I, I got into horror. The very first film I made well, no, I'm lying. The very first horror film I made, so I'd made a, made a bunch of films before that, I didn't even know it was a horror film. However, the main character is haunted by a demon throughout the entire film 
and I didn't think it was a horror film because it wasn't like in your face, blood, gore, all of that. So that that is what inducted me to Stranger With My Face International Film Festival, which is a festival that is specifically about community building around female genre filmmakers in Australia and the world. And that's when I, I saw a bunch of these short films. I'm like, these films are amazing. Why aren't these directors getting features? And they just, it's kind of like not converting, you know? And, and part of that, I think, is that idea, you know, where it's like the big studio head who's like a, you know, a middle class, well, no longer middle class, but probably when he was starting out, middle to upper class white dude um, who is now like, oh, I'm go- that guy reminds me of me. I'm going to, you know... I'm going to give that guy an opportunity. Whereas, so I think a lot of the time that, you know, up and coming male um, uh, filmmakers, they're they're seen for their potential and up and coming female directors and and not just females, but like people who are not the traditional, like, you know, it might be class, it might be race, it might be disability, all of those things. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, they're seen as risky. So rather than potential as a label, they're seen as all a bit of a risk. There's some something there, but then we're not right ready for them yet. So, like, this anthology was about spotlighting them in a bigger, longer project because shorts are hard to get out there um, to, yeah, try and get some opportunities. Megan, I realise we're actually also furthering the oppression because in a podcast episode where we want to be celebrating your artwork, you then have to come in and do the hard work and heavy lifting of chatting about the patriarchy. <laughs> so, like, let's draw a line in fuck the patriarchy. Yeah. Um, make some constructive, like, suggestions as we move through for how we can yeah. support our female and gender non-binary filmmakers. Um, let's make those. But let's start talking artworks, Megan. Let's... Yeah, I love, you know, we're, we're talking about your new anthology. Like I said, it's streaming at the moment on SBS On Demand. It is a horror anthology directed by well, directed by you for the framing device, but then yeah. directed by ten different female directors. And one of the things you mentioned before is that you know in the past, female horror directors or genre directors, and in fact, I want to take a step aside because we are both not in the film industry, and I often hear horror directors refer to themselves as genre directors. Yeah, yeah. What do you mean when you call yourself a genre director? Uh, you know what? It's interesting. My sister's like, I hate the word genre. Who uses the word genre? It's so wanky. Um, but I guess the way that you would like, I would compare it to say books. I would say that like your traditional drama films would be literature. And then, like, you know, your spy novels would be genre films. So there is, a, there is like, a, um, a snobbishness as well in Australia around genre films, if that makes sense. So it's sort of a, a non-mainstream, like, self, self-identification, is it? Or is it more that it's not art? It's not considered it's opposite, high art? Yes, it's the opposite of what you said, Peach. So, yeah, it's more like, you know, genre film is your popcorn film that you would go out to the movies. But, you know, I think that... That good genre film has a is a social commentary on society. I mean, you know, you guys have covered a bunch of um, you know films like Get Out and things like that, where it's a Trojan horse, you know. So a lot of people aren't going to want to go and see a drama about women's issues. You know, the people who are going to see dramas about women's issues are already you're preaching to the converted. Do you know what I mean? Whereas if you you know in kind of imbue your messages in some popular culture, <laughs> kind of get your message out there. Going back, and I got sidetracked, but fuck that—that that was that was an awesome answer, and now I understand it, and I'll start using it like I'm also <laughs> part of the industry. So um, you're a genre podcast. I'm a genre podcast. We are a genre podcast. Yeah. So there you go. Hundred percent. And look, the definitions of horror are hazy, and I know I know you guys have talked a little bit. Well, what is horror? And that's the idea as well that you know horror has been defined by men, really. Even though you know you go back and you look at Frankenstein. 
that is, you know, the Tell original. The yes. That's right. And and so I think it is that idea of, you know, horror is the things that horrify us, the things that are like either supernatural or extreme. Um, and what is extreme is different to different people. Do you know what I mean? To me, an interesting perspective on it is also the sense of transgression, that, that, that a horror film is that exploration of something profoundly wrong. Mm. And it sort of it can almost be regardless of gore or even regardless of jump scares or even regardless of monsters or regardless of ghosts. Yeah. It is something that crosses from being within the bounds of normalcy yeah. into other with fangs, you, you, you know, into an upsetting other. And, and totally agree. This almost leads me to think about why you specifically, but also more broadly horror as a genre, is attracted to the anthology piece because I feel mm. like horror is unusually well adapted to um, a lot of well-crafted like vignette kind of Twilight Zone episodes as it as it were. Yeah look uh, making this was quite a strategic decision but like just kind of going back why why there's so many horror anthologies there's a yeah, long history of horror anthologies and I think horror versus like I think because horror is often plot driven and so you can actually tell a, a story a plot driven story quite quickly in a short time frame and and kind of have a punch in there or you know a thought or a theme that is easy to present um, and I think it's also to do with and, and this is something else, I mean, this is a bigger conversation than we have t- time for today, but this idea of um, the way you market horror. So when you say we're going to do a horror anthology and people are like, yes, um, that works for us, but it also really works against a film like Dark Whispers as well because of Why the expectations. Yeah, it's the expectations of, of the pre-existing horror audience. So, you know, the interesting thing is is the, the poster that we have for Australia is quite a, you know, classy black and white poster with Andrea Dimitriades, who's the main actress in the wraparound. And we created that poster for the festival and that very much aligns with I, what I feel like is the tone and the themes of the film. Um, you know, we've got a sales agent over in the UK who's got a, a whole new poster. That poster is not market not aimed at me as an audience member at all it's aimed at young men i think so um what that means is is that you when you go onto itunes and you see that poster up on there there's a different person who's going to click that button versus the person if my festival poster was on itunes as a creator where do you draw that line for you like like, does a foot come down and you phone um fucking julie in the uk and say we need to have a pretty serious chat about this poster or, or, no, or, it's a, or do you sort of let the market speak and say... You, that, don't, you don't have any rights as a filmmaker. <laughs> Once you sign over to an international sales agent, it's their complete creative control and you can, you can make suggestions, but it's contractually you don't have any say. And look, the thing is for them, they're like, we know that we... Like, I guess because there isn't a long history... Well, no, there isn't a long mainstream history of women in horror and those kinds of films being out there. And look, there has been a a big, um, I think, shift in elevator genre, you know, so like horror films with messages with high production values and, you know, there's more drama elements and stuff like that. Uh, A24 sort of. Yeah, A24 kind of stuff. So I do feel like that that, that it definitely is broadening. But I think marketing-wise, I still don't think that it's like, it's such a tricky thing to embody what we're trying to do because there aren't a whole lot of mainstream ones out there. But the other thing as well I wanted to mention was the idea that when women do make films, they're generally given smaller budgets to begin with, and that includes marketing budgets. So when you kind of go, oh, why aren't you getting the publicity out there? You go, well, the 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 money that we've got to publicise is like hardly anything, especially, and that's any Australian film, no matter who is who is making that. And I sort of wonder whether... 
alongside the challenges of a massively limited budget and and the, and the patriarchy having its say in relation to that budget, whether the identification and and genrefication of the artwork mm. as this is a horror film, yeah, is a constraint, or whether it's something yeah. you embrace and then lean towards. Mm, it's interesting, and I, I think I think I'm learning a lot with how this film is getting out there and the responses that we're getting because we're getting trolled by by people who are expecting a gore fest and it's not that. Um, and, you know, like if you go onto IMDb, you'll notice that over 30% of our ratings is one out of 10. I mean, like you have to make a pretty bad film for it to be one out of 10, but that's because it's people who are seeing it. Um, and, but also there's also a long history of, you know, a bit of men's rights activists jumping on and trolling female directed films on IMDb, which, you know, I'm not sure if your listeners know what IMDb is, but it's the, um, you know, it's basically a live, like the resource place where you can go and see who, who makes the films and, you know, what the films is out there and it gives recommendations and things like that. And, I guess it, it also comes down to critics as well. You know, the majority of critics are men. And so if you're making content that is your primary audience is women and speaking to the women's experience, which I think Dark Whispers does, um, it's not to say they don't have a valid opinion, but they're getting a bigger share of the opinion. We're, we're going to go through one of the 10 films in Dark Whispers. So, you know, the whole point of Spooko from the beginning, although it's changed many times and has evolved as all projects do, at, at its core, this is all about getting Peach into the horror genre, getting him over his fear and getting him excited about them. So I want to take him through one of these films. But something you mentioned before that I think is really interesting, considering you've now, you are one, but you've worked with 10 on this anthology, how do they uh, approach the horror genre differently? Yeah, look, it's really interesting. So so to create this, we did a call out to industry. So they're pre-existing short films that I curated and I watched over 50. So look, I'm not a horror academic. There's actually quite a lot of feminist horror theory out there if you go looking for it. Um, but from what I saw was there's a much more psychological approach to the stories that are being told. So psychological horror is a much stronger thread. Not to say that there's not blood and gore, but if there is blood and gore, it tends to be there for a very specific reason, not for like just the the shock value. Um, And I I think part of that is around the idea that like for women, blood and gore is like part of everyday life, like, you know, periods and um, pregnancy and childbirth and menopause and, and, you know, women are poked and prodded, we're objectified, you know, the medicalization of women's bodies, you know, all that, those kinds of things. It's like for us, you know, there are still films that women have made that deal with those things, but I think it's the things that, the, the psychological things that scare us. Like every day, you know, living in the patriarchy is is a danger, you know? Like you look at the poor woman who's just being killed in the UK. That could be anyone. So today on Spooko, we are going to be going through one of the stories from 2019's Australian horror anthology, Dark Whispers, Volume 1.
It is a truth universally acknowledged that the greatest art form of all is the cinema trailer. Megan, I know you, you produce longer movies than either 45 seconds or two minutes, but I suspect you'd agree there's nothing more fun to watch than a trailer. Um, I give it 11 out of 10. I'm super pumped. Let's find out which Dark Whispers we're watching. I'm amped. All right, so I like I've now seen the whole thing. Now, usually on Spooko, you know, we are a spoiler cast, we're a recap podcast, but we do kind of want people to support Australian genre filmmakers. Look at me using lingo. Hey. So I'm not going to take you through the entire film. Uh, I will say that the film has an overarching story of a young woman going into her parents' house after the mother died to just go through the things, finds a book. That book has some pretty spooko stories in it. And those stories become, I guess, the meat and potatoes of Dark Whispers Volume 1. So I'm, I'm just going to go through one of those stories today. Megan, where's the line for you in this particular project between sort of editor, curator versus director? Like, mm. I can imagine people film in different ways and have different visual styles and you're like, oh, fuck, i got to make this all look somewhat like it's in the same universe oh look it was the script writing behind it so so basically when we did the call out we didn't have any themes or anything i didn't have any time limit on how old the films were so some of the films are a fair bit older than others some are shot on film some are digital um so really when you bring them in they're like you know all kinds of formatting, different formats even, like, you know, in delivery. So I, um, Enzo Tedeschi, who is actually, you know, so Dark Whispers Volume 1 is inspired by um, A Night of Horror Volume 1, which is an earlier Australian horror anthology, which has, you know, got a, a few different, it's all genders, it's not just women. Um, and he came on board and executive produced this project and he was the editor who edited it together. Um, but when I decided on those 10 short horror films curated alongside the um, Brian Kid from Stranger With My Face International Film Festival. I had to come up with a script that was going to do justice to each of those without being too big that it was going to overshadow each of the films themselves. So it was quite a tricky process and it was really, I tried to keep it as simple as possible. So in between each segment, there's like maybe one element that bleeds over from the previous film. Um, yeah, and then it was just, we only had one day to shoot that entire wraparound, so... Oh, wow. Yeah, so it was fast and dirty. <laughs> so, Which one are we doing? So one of my favourite things about a horror anthology is the fact that you're, like, in ten films, you're never going to... Like, not everyone is going to speak to you, but there will, will always be one or two that stick with you at the end. And i got to say, maybe I'm being a bit predictable, but the film I want to cover today from Dark Whispers Anthology was maybe one of the weirdest, not something I ever thought I'd see in a horror film. It's a short film that probably only goes for about seven or eight minutes called The Man Who Caught a Mermaid. So now there's no current Wikipedia synopsis for this, so I've had to make my own. So Megan, I'm going to need you to help me fill in the gaps when I miss anything. But The, the Man, man who, who Caught a Mermaid, mermaid starts with an old man... With his face in a bath full of water. And I guess the camera is shot, so we're looking up at his face. So we're, we're seeing him basically trying to hold his breath as far as I can tell. And he eventually realises he needs to breathe. And he pulls himself out of the water and he's like, fuck. Because I imagine he wanted to breathe for longer. This is um, your classic action movie, water torture kind of shot. Is it like, where, where, where we are the drain? Like, we're looking up. Yeah, okay. 
while he's doing this and, you know, with the idea that maybe he, because he's distracted, his wife is now seeing something she shouldn't see. We see her creep towards the shed in the backyard, open the door. There's a light glow that comes from the shed because this is at nighttime, so it's dark, but she opens the door. It's quite bright. She sees something in there that horrifies her. And then we cut to black. Now, I just want to stop here because there are a lot of tropey objects and scenes in horror films internationally that have come to mean scary things. Like kids' drawings, for one. You know, if, if you see a kid's drawing in a horror film, it's the scariest thing in the world. I realized when watching this, is the backyard shed, once you put that in a horror film, is it immediately a scary, spooky place? Chekhov's shed. I love it. Yes, 100%. And it's interesting because the um, Caitlin Tinker, who's the um, writer-director behind that, was interested in the darkness in the everyday suburbia. And what is more everyday suburban than the backyard shed? Yes. All right, yes. So, so we have that scene. That sets up the film. But then we cut to a couple of days earlier. And our man is on his way to just go fishing for the day. His wife uh, is, they're, they're clearly like an okay couple. Like there, there aren't any underlying, I mean, there's, there's usual tension, but they seem loving enough. And she reminds him to not forget about a meeting that he has to go to tonight. And he's like, yeah, don't worry about it. Anyway, so he then arrives at a pier with his fishing equipment. There's a couple of other fishermen there and they sort of jokingly sort of pay him out. They're like, oh, you're back again. And he's like, yeah, I am. And he's very, he's very, uh, he's very earnest in his approach. He's like, yeah, I am. I'm going to catch it today. And they basically sort of say, so you're going to catch a mermaid. And the implication is that he comes out here every day to try and catch a mermaid. He never does. And this today, he's like, today's different. The tides are better. I'm going to get her. And they're like, yeah, sure. We, we then cut, cut to the, the end. end. Like, we, we have, have a few, we have a little bit of a sort of montage sort of thing to show that he's been there the whole day. Those fishermen who sort of pay him out, out. And in a sort of loving way. They're, they're sort of like, this, this is a harmless guy who thinks he's going to catch a mermaid. Lol, lol, lol. Like, we'll pay him out. But at the end of the day, you know, there's, there's some camaraderie there. They leave. He stays. That night, we see him return home at night. And we see him dragging a body wrapped in plastic into the garden shed. We, we then see him lighting a cigarette by the, and, and again, like, like the backyard shed, right? The backyard shed should not be a scary place, but in a horror film it is. Uh, the backyard tap that every Australian backyard would have, all of a sudden, uh, this becomes a scary item in the fact that we see him turn the tap on and then we follow the attached hose. Like the camera basically goes down to the ground, follows this hose, all the way to the shed. We kind of see his feet almost do a little dancing jig on the way into the shed. And then we go into the shed. Am I I in the start of midsummer when I'm following this hose? Yes, it is that vibe. It is that vibe. Because once we get into the shed, we then see, and this is where I was like, oh fuck. So this is like, this is something I never thought I would see in a horror film. We see a scary mermaid. No shit. Uh, and, and I'm curious to hear what your understanding of what the director was going for, because it kind of looks like somebody who thought, I want to have a mermaid in this, but I want it to look like a realistic mermaid because they have gills. You know, it's the classic topless mermaid, but she has 
very sharp, spooky teeth. She has gills all the way up her chest to her neck in the fact that you kind of see the skin separate and you kind of like, like it's a great makeup job. This is mm. one of those ones where I'm like, this film was not the first film of this director. And even when the mermaid speaks, they can't speak. They just kind of go like, <laughs> like, <laughs> Like it's, you, you know, what what was your impression of seeing this mermaid, Megan? Oh, look, I think the mermaid is incredibly beautiful and scary as fuck. Like, I just um, the, the the idea I think from what Caitlin was trying to get at was this idea that what men see is what a mermaid would be, and what women would see a mermaid be. So you know, this is a film made by a woman, um, and so she's kind of in putting, I guess, a combination of of that male gaze and the female gaze melded in this because the male character, you know, the old guy, he's the one who's enamoured by her. But the director's the one who's created the design with the design team. So he is like, shit, I've caught a mermaid. I've finally done it. This is awesome. He leaves the shed. The wife sort of corners him in the backyard. He sort of positions her to move away from the shed because obviously he's hiding this from her. And she makes a point where she's like, can we stop with the whole mermaid bullshit? You spent all day fishing. You missed this meeting. I told you, you missed Chekhov's meeting (laughs) that I told you about this morning. And he very cleverly and very sneakily is like, don't worry, I won't do any more fishing anymore. You know, like wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I now don't need to. Anyway, the next day, she gets more and more suspicious as he starts to just bring stuff into the shed. It starts with, like, tinned food. Then it becomes tinned cat food. And then eventually it becomes, like, a whole fish that he's just roasting in the kitchen and then he brings into the shed. So that night, she decides to go into the shed to see what's in there. So we then go back to the first scene of this film, right? We see her go into the shed. We see him... Now we kind of know why he's trying, I guess, why he's trying to hold his breath because, like, he wants to be closer to this mermaid. And so while he's trying to hold his breath and she knows that he's distracted, she's like, I'm going to go into the shed to see what's in there. So she goes into the shed and this is where it becomes, like, proper psychological spooko horror because what she sees is a little bit different to what he sees she then goes into the shed and she sees a young woman who is tied up who is bound and gagged and she's just got her legs uh i guess bound with cling wrap so she's kind of like a fake contorted mermaid and at this point i was like oh that i did not expect this i just thought this is going to be a film about a mermaid but yeah, can you explain this twist? Do you know, like, do you, do you have more insight into this twist, Megan? Oh, where it it's... turns out that what he's actually done is just captured a young girl and turn, and kept her trapped in his backyard and turned her into a mermaid. Yeah. Oh, I loved this film. I actually saw this film a, a few years before um, and remembered it. Um, oh, I just it's that idea that like that a woman's been objectified and that that woman that that. This guy's essentially, I guess, a serial killer who's gone out, hunted what he thinks is his right to take and claim, I guess. So, and and I know that when Caitlin, Caitlin talked about when she came up with this idea that, you know, she was living, you know, in the suburbs and she would see this old man and he would potter around in his garden and she thought, hmm, I wonder what that guy is getting up to. I, w- I wonder if that guy's sinister because this is the thing that women think. Like when I'm walking down the street, it's pe- particularly if it's getting dark, it doesn't matter who that guy is. 
I'll be clocking that guy and I'll be thinking, hmm, how safe is this guy? Yeah, which one's going to take me home and turn me into a mermaid? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, fucking hell. Okay, so so anyway, so so this is now now we're racing towards the conclusion. And again, remember this film goes for about seven minutes. It's crazy how much it fits into the very small amount of time. And so, you know, wife confronts him. He comes in because he sees her go in. She's like, what the fuck are you doing? This girl is like, you've, and you know, first of all, her concern is for the girl. She's like, this girl is sick. You need to like, let her go. Like she's clearly mal, because she's been there for a little while. She's clearly malnourished. It's like, you have to, you have to let this girl go. He's still like classic, like, you know, scary movie trope. He's gone insane. So he's like, what do you mean? She's a mermaid. She's not sick. And then he's like, oh no, I see what you mean. She's sick because she needs to be in salt water. I've got her in this like kiddie pool in my shed, which is just filled with the, you know, the, the hose, but I, I need to put her in water. So then the husband and the wife have a scuffle. He knocks her out, potentially kills her. You're not quite sure, but basically the husband knocks the wife out who was kind of, you know, our girl's only chance for escape. And then he's like, she needs salt water. So he takes her with her legs still bound, with her arms still bound, with her, uh, I guess her face still covered so she can't scream, takes her back to the pit dumps her in we don't really see what happened next but we just hear the faint siren of a police car somewhere off to be like maybe help was on the way maybe not but that's the end of the man who caught a mermaid and yeah like i mean as a horror short film i was like i was like wow okay number one never seen a mermaid thing number two did not pick and like i reckon it would be easy to pick a twist in a lot of horror films because you've, you've got you don't have a lot of time so you have to signpost it quite well i did not pick that uh peach what did you think about the man who caught a mermaid uh, extremely good like i'm i'm upset um what do we talk about good horror that like you're meant to feel knocked yeah. off your axis do you think, Megan, do you think it was important at the end? Like, like I know this sounds fucked, right? But yeah. for it to be like a convincing horror film, was it important at the end that she didn't escape and, in fact, it was left for us left to think that actually she's now going to die? Yeah, it's so interesting because when I was making... So I, I obviously watched the film. I didn't know the backstory. I didn't know anything else. And then during the course of making a film, you often need to get the original scripts just for boring stuff. Um, and when I read the script, it has a different ending. So, yeah, the ending is that the mother comes to... Not the mum, sorry. The ending is that the wife comes to and she is the one who's called the cops and she they're able to save the girl so that's what's written in the script and i think they actually shot it i'm not 100 percent sure if they shot it but i think they decided that the message was more powerful in that ambiguity and i think it is that idea that you know that there are you know it's like the the hunter has picked off somebody from the pack. Do you know what I mean? That that's happening. It's still happening. And, and then, you know, the, 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 the fact that the wife, she is a, you know, is trying to intervene. Like a lot, a lot, a lot of people in, in living in the patriarchy are trying to do the right thing and they become collateral damage in a way. Mm. Um, so uh, yeah, I think it's, it's such a, it's such a simple story, but it, it is so representative of 
what's going on. I mean, it's a simple story that involves a real-life mermaid. Uh, it's, I, I, <laughs> a simple I horror story. A mythology. I, I, yeah, well, exactly. I can't stress enough how amazed I was when the mermaid was on screen. It's like, oh, there's a mermaid. Like, you, you're going there. This, like, I, I guess that's kind of what I love about horror. Is, is that a thing that's attracted you to horror, the fact that you oh, can yeah. kind of do anything? Yeah, I mean, like, I love Pan's Labyrinth. I mean, that is such a... And it's interesting because different people classify that as a different thing. It's like, you know, fantasy, horror, you know, drama, fable, fairy tale, dark fairy tale. But really, when you look at, like, Grimm's fairy tales, they're pretty bloody horrific, really, the original ones. And, 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 and fairy tales are often about lessons in life. And so from my perspective, you know, horror films can also be lessons. If, if you're going to identify yourself as a genre director and get into arguments with your sister about it, you must have some conception of, of, what, of what makes horror as a genre. And I was wondering whether, like where you fall on that continuum of whether a disconcerting ending is necessary and without a disconcerting ending, it's Harry Potter. So like, yeah, if she gets saved, you're like, Oof, that was close. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it could have been, you know, a TV show. But with the death at the end, you're like, oh, fuck. Like, like we have transgressed here. We've seen mm. something. I don't think it has to be a bad... I don't think it has to be a negative ending, but I think it needs to be bittersweet in some way. So the ending to, to the anthology is bittersweet. Um, mm. And for me personally as a filmmaker... Like, look, I think in general Western audiences are much more um, comfortable with an arc where there's redemption of some description, even if redemption is death. Um, whereas, you know, a lot more, you know, Eastern filmmakers are more comfortable with like full-blown tragedies where it's just like, that's just shit, you know? Um, and I kind of like something in between, like, I feel like we have to lose things. Things have to be, there has to be something lost, but in losing something, you value what you have more. I want to say a big thank you to Megan Riakos who joined us on Spooko today. Uh, the creator of Dark Whispers Volume 1. Final question. I mean... It feels the ambition is there. You've called it Dark Whispers Volume One. Is yeah. the plan for this to be a franchise like Saw? Oh. You'll eventually get to Dark Whispers 3D. Can the next episode <laughs> be like all white male private school educated directors <laughs> to like sort of twist the? <laughs> Don't laugh. I've had some people say, "Well, what about men?" <laughs> I was like, "You've had like a hundred years a of men." <laughs> Um, yeah, look, if you build it, they will come, hey? Like, uh, mm. you know, this was an, a fully independent project, so, you know, there's a lot of blood, sweat and tears and debt that goes into it. I can't make another film this way, but, um, you know, it's it's one of those things. You put it out there, you see, we see if we can make our money back, we see if that there's a market for it. If there's interest, then I'm re- I'd love to do a second series, but I'm also interested in, it may not necessarily be horror, but it might also be other genres, like science fiction, which I um, think would be really cool to explore science fiction through female gaze dark whispers volume one as i said before if you're in australia available now on sbs on demand uh if you're not in australia where can we see this it's also on itunes google play and other major platforms in australia and uk and we we do have a sale with north america so later in the year it'll be coming to you and vpns exist so uh, yeah, just, exactly. I mean, Apply just, an just, extra 45 seconds effort, set up a just, VPN and watch this <laughs> fucking movie. Just putting that up there. Uh, Megan, thank you so much for joining us. It's an absolute pleasure. Thanks. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Uh, this was recorded at FBI Studios. Please like, subscribe and follow wherever you can and as much as you can. And Resh's, what's up?